With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're going to ring the bell. Today. 60 minutes. 60 minutes to me. 60 minutes. No big. You're the first You got me. We're going to ring the bell. We're going to ring that championship bell. Welcome to the Kravitsky and Kane podcast. I'm Bobby Kravitsky. Co-hosting alongside me, as always, is Jeff Kane. You can find me on Twitter at Bobby underscore K91. You can find him at, go ahead and plug yourself, Mr. Kane. Jeff Kane 78. So that's Kane with a K, baby. Got that right. Now, Jeff leading up until today we had our philosophical differences on how the Patriots did in this draft but now today you've kind of shifted your vantage point around so let's start with your outlook on how the Patriots fared this past weekend uh decent decent at best I mean did my focus shift I mean I watched a lot of tape over the last three or four days um, has my focus shifted from complete and utter disdain for what they did to, all right, maybe there's a couple diamonds in the rough? Yes, a little bit. Um, but still, outside of Cyrus Jones and Malcolm Mitchell, I I really don't see where they improved themselves at all. And even with, with, with Mitchell, I don't think it's an improvement. I think he's a, a, a key cog. Jones is the one person that I think could actually make a um, you know a, a could some some way to kind of contribute this year. He's the one person that I could see making a splash. But other than that, we'll get into it. I have some real issues for what they did uh, last Friday and Saturday. And Jeff, we're of course going to talk about one of those issues, which is their failure to draft a running back. Of course, they did sign undrafted free agent DJ Foster from Arizona State. But I think it's clear to me that they don't view running back as a priority going into this season. There also is the reality that the 2017 draft class is stacked at the running back position. It's similar to how deep defensive tackle was this draft. And so when you take that into account, I think the Patriots looked at it and said, we really don't have any pressing needs We just want to build up our quality depth. And they also looked at a few positions long-term, maybe not all of the ones that we thought they would, but I look at Cyrus Jones as the heir apparent to Logan Ryan, who's a free agent next year and likely to get larger offers on the open market. So I think Logan Ryan is very likely to be playing his last season in New England and that Cyrus Jones is going to come in and contribute right away, but then ultimately replace Ryan in the secondary same thing along the offensive line I don't know if Tooney is going to start or he's going to be a part of a rotation but he's going to help provide quality depth in one way or another 
to an offensive line that was sorely lacking it last season. Yeah, and I look at Jones, and I don't think he's a replacement for Logan Ryan. Um, do I think Logan Ryan is back after this year? No. I mean, listen, you got <clears throat> Jamie Collins that's going to be, you know, a uh, free agent. You've got, uh, you know, Dante Hightower is going to be a free agent. Of course, the restricted free agent of Malcolm Butler. I don't believe he's going anywhere. I don't believe uh, that Cyrus Jones is your heir apparent um, for Logan Ryan. I think that's already on the on the roster. Last year's seventh round draft pick Roberts. I think he is the he's the kid that's going to step up and really uh, you know become that that quarterback. Ran a blazing fast four point three eight forty coming out of the two thousand fifteen combine. He was running with the ones. Uh, he even started the first preseason game before a wrist injury brought him down. I think that's your heir apparent uh, to Logan Ryan. I think Cyrus Jones fits in extremely well as that nickel cornerback. And let's face it, in today's NFL, the nickel cornerback plays as much, if not more, than the third linebacker uh, or the you know fourth defensive end on the uh, on the playing field. The way that I see Cyrus Jones really being able to uh, you know step up and make a difference this year is in the return game. He's a four-down player. He's a gunner on special teams, which is great, but it's a four-down player. And don't forget, Bobby, the NFL has changed the rules on touchbacks this year, bringing them out to the 25-yard line. So I think you're going to see kickers line up and kick the ball and try to get it at the you know two, three, one-yard line somewhere in there, and you're going to see more uh, kick returns because they're going to hope their coverage is good enough to stop them from getting to the 25-yard line than getting out uh, any further past that. The Patriots haven't had a great kick return in a while. And let's face it, Cyrus Jones, great in the punt return game, going to take some pressure off Danny Amendola and Julian Edelman, uh, keep them healthy. But also in the kick return game, this is a guy who has good speed, good open field vision, uh, and he you know, has the, the wherewithal to probably get by that 25-yard line if he's returning kicks. Small sample size for Dale Roberts last year. He's definitely one of the names to keep an eye on going into training camp this season. Also love the fact that Cyrus Jones is going to be able to alleviate some of the workload that burdened Julian Edelman and Danny Amendola last season and in prior years. Now, another one of the picks that raised an eyebrow from Patriots Nation, Jeff, was the selection of Jacoby Brissett in the third round. It's clear that there was a large influence from Bill Parcells and Charlie Weiss basically telling Bill Belichick that he's a hybrid between Jesus and Mother Teresa. So <laughs> what, what did you think of this draft pick? Oh, horrible. I hated this draft pick. Absolutely hated this draft pick. There's only so many years left of Tom Brady. Um, you know, maybe at best, you know, he's got four years left on that contract, but really at best, we have two to three years of him being solid. Father time is going to catch up on him. Well, there were so many other players that they could have gone out and drafted at a later date. Jacoby Brissett, I don't see it in him. Now, granted, I'm not Charlie Weiss, who is definitely my favorite offensive coordinator of all time in the Patriots system. Uh, I'm not uh, Bill Parcells, uh, but I just don't see the reason to go out and draft him here. And here's one of my big things. I have never had an issue with the Patriots going out and drafting quarterbacks. 
It's extremely good business to draft quarterbacks in the NFL and then get assets from them. But really, outside of lucking into Tom Brady, and let's face it here, ladies and gentlemen, it was luck that the New England Patriots were able to draft Tom Brady, number 199 overall, after six players came out ahead of him. Absolute luck to do that. Bill Belichick is horrible at drafting and developing quarterbacks. He did it with Tom Brady. Tom Brady made the New England Patriots what they are today with some great coaching by Charlie Weiss, a great defense put together by Bill Belichick, but Tom Brady made this team what it is today. The next closest thing you can have to a success for the Patriots is Matt Castle, and he was almost run out of town in the 2008 preseason. They had Chris Sims on a flight in here before week one, before Brady got hurt, uh, to possibly be the next quarterback, you know, the backup quarterback because of how little confidence they had in Matt Castle. Fortunately, Brady gets hurt. They give the keys to Castle. They go 11-5 and and don't make it. But look at, listen to some of these names the Patriots have drafted. Kevin O'Connell, horrible. Rohan Davey, horrible. Cliff Kingsbury, horrible. Ryan Mallett in the third round in 2011, horrible. We don't know yet what we have in Jimmy Garoppolo, drafted in the uh, second round two years ago. I understand drafting Brissett this year in the third round, hoping that with the four games uh, Garoppolo plays this year that you may be able to move him and get something. But out of all these quarterbacks that the New England Patriots have drafted, they've drafted the most quarterbacks in the NFL outside of the New York Jets. The only compensation that they've gotten on this is a second-round pick from the Kansas City Chiefs from Matt Castle, and that had to include Mike Vrabel in that draft pick, and a conditional conditional seventh-round draft pick by the, um, by the, uh, for Matt uh, Ryan Mallett. Now look at this. The Green Bay Packers made a habit of this. Mark Brunel backed up. Brett Favre traded for a third and fifth rounder. Matt Hasselbeck traded with the 17th pick for the 10th and a third rounder. Aaron Brooks traded to the Saints for a third rounder. Aaron Rodgers drafted, you know, in the end of the uh, end of the first round, and allows the team to go out and win another Super Bowl. And they trade Brett Favre for a conditional fourth rounder. That is how it's done. The Patriots have done a piss poor job developing quarterbacks. Jeff, you make a good point. But at the same time, it's easier for a quarterback to come in, especially when he has time to develop and to ultimately have a degree of success in today's NFL with how the rules are and how they judiciate defenses and especially in the passing game. And secondly, I think what has become clear is that even though the Patriots haven't done a great job of developing quarterbacks overall. They've also proven, and Matt Castle's the quintessential example of this, but there are others, Brian Hoyer, chief among them, that they've shown they can tailor a player's strengths and weaknesses to fit a certain system. They did it with Tom Brady, in fact. And so so I look at what they did, and in fact, you discussed what a lot of people forget is how close they came to replacing Matt Castle going into the year that Brady went down, I think that's even more impressive that they were able to ride it out with Castle 
come up with a system that allowed him to be successful. And yes, the strength of schedule wasn't great, but they still won 11 games, which is hard to do no matter who you're playing. So Yeah, but you won 11 games a year after setting almost every single record. Now, with Tom Brady, of course, as your quarterback. Right. Matt with Castle a defense that was great. College. Let's keep I understand that. So, I mean, that's they, they lucked out in, in, in Tom Brady. It, it's a luck pick. It was absolutely a luck pick. And they did a good job of developing things around Matt Castle just to get to 11 wins. But, I mean, if you look at the talent that it was around Matt Castle that year, I mean, just about anyone should have got 11 wins. No, I, uh, I disagree with that. I don't think you could have just thrown it, especially someone who really hadn't played since high school. If, you know, a few, tra- a few uh, preseason games here and there and training camps. I, I think that was impressive what they did with Matt Castle and specifically beyond the record, the fact that he played so effectively. I don't think that they could have done it with any old quarterback, and I don't think that a below-average quarterback could have come in here and produced 11 victories. Most of that was produced. It wasn't produced on the strength of Matt Castle. No, but he did I mean, play he, well. You have to give him credit. There, he had back-to-back games where he, where he threw for over 400 yards and played well. Um, but still, I mean, that is really the outlier. And He was a seventh-round draft pick. I just named off six other guys that have – failed miserably and they've they've gone with huge draft capital to get these guys I mean a third rounder number 74 overall for Ryan Mallett who 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 doesn't amount to anything absolutely nothing you know a second rounder, and everyone talks about Jimmy Garoppolo what has Jimmy Garoppolo ever done now granted he has might have a four game uh uh jump start here with Tom Brady being suspended where he could actually buck the trend and allow the Patriots to trade and get something. But Jimmy Garoppolo has done absolutely nothing that shows me anything in, in, in his NFL career. He had a 9-10 game against the Kansas City Chiefs, where the Kansas City Chiefs were up 41-10. to And then he comes in and plays the Buffalo Bills in the last game of the season. Granted, he doesn't have a lot of starters with him, but completes 23% of his passes when faced with a blitz package of pressure. Wasn't very good last year in the uh, preseason. Everyone is all on his jockstrap because he threw a couple long passes to Brian Timms a couple years ago. I, I, I don't like where this is heading, and I believe me, we don't want to get into a situation like the Denver Broncos or the Miami Dolphins or the Buffalo Bills when they're constantly searching for that next player to become the next Tom Brady, the next Dan Marino, the next John Elway forever and ever and ever. And I understand drafting a quarterback, but tell me why you're taking a guy in the third round who is an extreme developmental guy. This guy cannot step in tomorrow. Tell me why you're taking a guy in the third round like this that cannot help. You're going to right now, you're going to start the season with Jimmy Garoppolo as your starting quarterback. If the NFL has their way and you didn't give him extra players around him, a running back that can do something, uh, a wide receiver that could step up. Now, I like Mitchell, as I said, but, you know, you don't have Tom Brady out there the first four games of the season. I just don't get this this pick. I think it was a reach pick. I think it was wrong. But, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not out there on the scouting trail all the time. I just don't like the pick. 
Well, Jeff, you might not like the reason, but you know the reason they took Jacoby Brissett. It's because he got such a sterling recommendation from Belichick's buddies in Bill Parcells and Charlie Weiss. And then secondly, I look at the Patriots schedule these first four games, and I think you can't predict the future here, but I think there's a good chance they go three and one after Arizona. They've got three home games, a couple of them in the division. So I like their odds to win those games. And sure, they could have drafted another weapon, but I wouldn't select one strictly with the first four games of the season in mind. Like I said, we may not agree with it, but they feel that at least for this season, they are set at the running back position. And it's not about what we would do as armchair GM. You have to take that hat off and put on the one that understands how they viewed things because this is the reality in the way that they operate. So secondly, they have enough weapons here that they didn't need to go out and get another wide receiver in the third round either as much as I would have loved one. And I also do like the Mitchell pick, but we'll see how much he contributes this season because I don't think it will be all that much and kind of hope it's not because I think the only way he does is injuries to the players in front of him where they're they've got some very effective players in the likes of Edelman, Amendola, Gronkowski, and don't forget they added Martellus Bennett this season. You're going to see a lot of two tight end sets out of New England once again at a level that hasn't produced to the likes of since they had Aaron Hernandez across from Gronkowski. So I think there's a lot of weapons on this offense, even for Jimmy Garoppolo to come in there. They're going to make things very basic for him, like they did with Matt Castle when he had to sub in for Brady. They're going to put him in a position to succeed, and we'll see how he does. Time will tell. Well, here we are so early in the, in the, uh, in the year, uh, in May. We don't, you know, none of these guys have put on a helmet in anger yet. But if I'm going to put on my Noster Fat Guy uh, hat right now and, and predict the future, I'm going to tell you right now that a hobbled Deion Lewis, which he is hobbled, uh, and an old man running back in LeGarrette Blount are not going to help you win a Super Bowl this year. The Patriots, if they don't get some help, are going to be done in the playoffs again by a defense that can tee off on them. Like I said, Jeff, time will tell. They've clearly put more stock in the offensive line being able to help the running game than putting capital into the running back position itself. Otherwise, who knows? Maybe someone like Matt Forte would be here, but that's not how they looked at things. And time will tell if they got this one right or not. But like I said, let's go to that offensive line picture right now, Jeff, because one decision that had me scratching my head was if they view Tooney as an interior offensive lineman, and we still don't know whether that's guard or center, by the way. A lot of people are thinking guard, but even Mike Reese said, in the scouts and executives that he spoke to, they pretty much unanimously told him that Tooney's best position projects to be center, not guard. So that is going to be interesting to see how it plays itself out in training camp. But regardless of which one of those two positions they view him as, why not then draft a tackle to ultimately be the heir apparent to Sebastian Vollmer, who it's widely considered is going to be playing his last season in a Patriots uniform. A couple things here, Bobby. Number one is I think that they have a little more of a higher opinion on Adrian Waddle than some of us do. I think that Scar has a higher opinion on Marcus Cannon, who I actually think could be cut. Tooney, listen, I, 
again, another pick that I like the player. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think Tooney's going to be a very good guard in this league. Um, I just didn't see the need for him, uh, you know, with Jonathan Cooper, who was just acquired. Uh, with the fact that you signed Josh Klein to a two-year deal. With the fact that you, uh, you know, drafted two guards last year in Shaq Mason and Trey Jackson. Um, I, I just didn't see the need for another guard. However, you did point out something a couple seconds ago about that two tight end set in Rob Gronkowski and Martellus Bennett. These are guys that both can step up and block. They can run block. So maybe they feel that, you know what, we'll be all right at the tackle position with uh, Nate Soldier, who I believe is a very good uh, tackle. He's not an upper echelon tackle, but I believe he is a good tackle in the NFL. Um, I believe he's definitely... Uh, as I said, a good tackle. And right tackle Sebastian Vollmer, he is having a very good end-of-career renaissance. So maybe they feel that just for this year they can get through, and then Leadrian Waddle, who is still young, can step in and be that right tackle uh, that he was in for the Detroit Lions, and maybe they feel comfortable with that. Not the way I would have gone. Again, I, I, I... on this show and, and in some of my articles, I thought the Raven Clark would be a great uh, draft pick in the third or fourth round, ultimately where he ended up going. Um, but you know what? Again, we're not in that we're not in that film room with them. We're not seeing what they like to see. But if I'm going to have a guess, Tooney was drafted because they want to uh, you know get a little better at the interior offensive line position, where there has been issues in the past where if you get up into the face of Tom Brady, he's not as good of a quarterback. And maybe uh, they're looking for more of an interior uh, presence in getting that running game going, whether it be uh, you know Donald Brown or a hobbled Deion Lewis or LeGarrette Blount or even Tyler Gaffney or any of these guys. So maybe that's the situation they're talking about there. Yeah, Jeff, both of us, we discussed LaRaven Clark on a separate podcast, liked him very much, but Clearly, the Patriots felt that he's just too raw, too much of a project to bring on. Even, In fact, it's funny that you mentioned Marcus Cannon. Coming out of college, he was very raw, but he was still further ahead than Clark is coming out of school. Obviously, Laraven Clark has a much higher ceiling, but the fact remains that this is an unpolished prospect. So we'll see how his career works out for him. And Jeff, I hate to rile up the cage, although, to be honest, it does make for an entertaining podcast, you look at the offensive linemen that the Patriots have targeted, whether it be Tooney, whether it be Ted Karras, and both of them excel specifically as pass blockers. And you look at the addition of Martellus Bennett, and in the beginning, everyone was praising it for the fact that he is a versatile tight end who's not just a receiver, but can do both, which brings that unpredictability back into the mix where you don't know just because there's two tight ends on the field what the Patriots are going to do. But then you look at the players on the offensive line that the Patriots are drafting, and it just looks like they're even more committed to the passing game. They weren't targeting a big mauling, run-blocking guard. They were targeting one of the best pass blockers available in the draft. And for the next two years, maybe that's what they're saying. They're saying, the best way for us to win is, you know, throwing the ball with Tom Brady, throwing the ball with Jimmy Garoppolo to start the season. Maybe that's what they feel. 
that's the only reason that I, I believe they're out there. But I still think, and, and I'll go to my grave saying this, you still need balance to win in the playoffs. And outside of that 2014 season where they came back twice from 14 down, passing the ball, and Tom Brady is greatest fourth quarter ever in the Super Bowl, and a miracle interception are the only reason the Patriots got off a 10-year schneid. Yeah, I agree with that philosophy wholeheartedly, Jeff. I know that's one that, like you said, that's a hill you're willing to die on, and I respect that. Now, let me ask you, as we look into the crystal ball, I'm going to need you to channel that Nostar fat guy again. (laughs) Is there any scenario in which you could see the Patriots holding on to Jimmy Garoppolo through next offseason? Yeah, if he absolutely shines uh, the first four um, games of the season, absolutely plays, you know, and is just as great as Tom Brady ever was. And then in the offseason, they sit there and say, all right, two first-round draft picks for Tom Brady. That is the, I mean, I don't think it will ever happen. Um, but you know what? Stranger things have happened, especially with Bill Belichick uh, as a personnel man. I don't think the Cleveland Browns ever thought that they'd move on um, from Bernie Kosar. And I, for one, can remember uh, when the Patriots signed Drew Bledsoe to a 10-year, $103 million um, contract, which was actually really a three-year, $30 million contract. But still, I could never imagine a day that they would trade uh, either one of Drew Bledsoe or as a Cleveland Browns fan. I'm sure they never thought Bernie Kosar. I find it highly unlikely, um, but at the same point, that I mean, it, that's the only way I could see them not moving on uh, from Jimmy Garoppolo uh, next year. And, and and maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe they feel Brissett uh, fits this offense very well, um, and that they can trade Jimmy Garoppolo and then turn around and Brissett is the heir apparent. Yeah, I just can't see a scenario barring injury where. Garoppolo is on this team next season, and Brady's not. I understand that if Jimmy G comes in and lights the world on fire these first four games, that there's going to be a contingency clamoring to keep him because he's younger, but I just don't think that the Patriots, especially not Kraft, will look to move on from Tom Brady. I think it's almost a guarantee that Brady's going to be finishing his career however many years he has left in a New England Patriots uniform. And it'll be interesting to see how well he plays and for how long he can keep it up. But I don't see the decline coming this season. And like I said, barring injury, I don't think that they would keep Garoppolo over Brady, which is going to put the spotlight next season on Jacoby Brissett. And we'll see how he looks in training camp where all eyes are on Jimmy Garoppolo right now. They'll be on Brissette a year from now. If that's how things unfold, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with Brissette, who was a third-round pick, one of their higher selections. Jeff, let's look now at their later-round picks and even their undrafted free agents because they brought in a few of the better ones available. Do you see anyone from that group ultimately playing their way on to the 53-man roster? Um, the way, the guy that I really like on the undrafted free agents, and and this will come as no big surprise to you, uh, DJ Foster, um, who is, you know, a great player. Uh, I think has a lot of, a lot of things that he can do well, um, for this team. He can, last year, um, 
he was switched to uh, the slot wide receiver um, and caught 55 balls. Uh, he ran the ball very, very well um, in 2015 uh, in the Pac-12. 194 carries for over 1,000 yards, nine touchdowns. Actually had more receptions as a running back with 62 uh, for 688 yards. Last year switched into that slot wide receiver role. Um, so he's the type of guy that could do a little bit of everything for the New England Patriots. Um, I like him a lot, Foster. I think Foster could actually make this team, especially if he's willing to turn around and you know do some good things on special teams. Uh, this is a guy that does a lot of different things. We'll see what happens, but I really like Foster, the kid out of Arizona State, and his teammate, uh, Devin Lucian. Um, I think he could make, make it as well. Bigger wide receiver plays the outside and does a nice job at that. You know, six foot one, 201 pounds, uh, you know, 31 and a half, or 31 and 7 eighths inch arms. I mean, really good, ran a 4.49. Uh, 40, and then of course that three cone drill that the Patriots love, 6.93. Um, did some amazing things the last three games of the season, over 500 yards. So this is a kid that, you know, I always talk about David Givens on this on this podcast and any other podcast you and I have done in the past, Bobby. And I always talk about how he really developed that role um, that the Patriots have always looked at as that X wide receiver, maybe not the fastest guy in the world, but the guy that can get 10 to 15 to 20 yards down the field, short hands and do things. It, it was, it was a role that, you know, David Gibbons absolutely excelled at. David Patton before him did a very nice job at it. And, and then it took some time. The Patriots really didn't have that X wide receiver. Um, you know, Dion branch came back and they moved him out of that Z wide receiver spot and more into the X, and he did a decent job uh, with with Wes Welker, and it did took some time until they got Brandon LaFell to do it. Uh, Lucian has the ability um, to do that, but he's going to have to step up and want to be committed to special teams the way that David Givens stuck on their roster. Having to be, uh, you know, I mean, it, all three phases of the game is one of Bill Belichick's favorite things to say, and it starts with special teams. These young guys, these end-of-the-draft guys, need to step up and become special teams players if they want to stick. Well said, Jeff. It reminds me of how Terrell Davis played his way onto the Broncos because of his abilities on special teams his rookie season. Starting with one of their first preseason games, he goes out and absolutely lights someone up on a kickoff, and from there really caught everyone's attention, earned the right to get opportunities as a ball carrier, and the rest is history. So. I completely agree with that's how it will have to happen for one of these players. It starts with special teams and positional drills, and then you get the more opportunities as you earn them. And I like the guys you mentioned, along with Ted Karras, who is a one of the best pass-blocking right guards in this entire draft. DJ Foster, another player who, <coughs> excuse me, I really like. It's clear. Mike Loiko posted on Twitter a video of a local news station with Foster's reaction and him talking to the Cardinals, the Texans, and the Patriots. And it's clear that the Patriots are very high on him as well. They, in fact, offered more money than those other two teams to ensure that he would come to Foxborough. But again, it's very hard to see those two guys making the roster. Same with Devin Lucian. Lucian, excuse me. He's a player 
that I'm very high on. You look at his footwork. You look at the fact that he makes plays with the ball in his hands at that X position like you're talking about that LaFell and Givens did. I love his toughness, the fact that he's willing to come across the middle and take a hit. He uses his body exceptionally well. By the way, one of the routes that he is best at is those back shoulder catches, and we know that's a staple of bread and butter for the Patriots. So the fact that he's already doing that effectively is a good sign for his chances to make the team. But again, it's certainly a possibility for any of those three to play their way onto the roster, but it's going to take an upset or an injury for that to happen. And I'm just not sure. You can't predict health, but as far as an upset goes, I'm not sure that it plays out that way. Well, I'm going to tell you, give you one last thing on DJ Foster. He reminds me a lot. Go watch his running style. Go to YouTube. Go to any of the scouting starts um, sites. Watch his running style. And there was a man Friday night who endeared himself to New England Patriots fans all over uh, by announcing a pick wearing a Tom Brady jersey, a man that is up for enshrinement in the Patriots Hall of Fame, and his name is Kevin Falk. Go back and watch college highlights of Kevin Falk uh, in 98, 97, 98 at LSU, and then go back and watch a little bit of DJ Foster. Very, very similar running styles, uh, very similar players. I think DJ Foster's this year's, and they do it every year, but this year's undrafted free agent that makes this team and makes an impact. Yeah, I believe me, I would not be surprised at all, but it's going to take some luck for DJ Foster to make this roster. Jeff, it's also going to take some luck for the Boston Celtics to play their way into being a contender next season, and that obviously starts May 17th with the ping pong balls, Jeff if the Celtics are fortunate enough to get the number one pick, do you lean Ben Simmons or Brandon Ingram? Uh, stay with Simmons, man. We just talked to LSU. We got to go with Simmons. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, what was the one thing um, that they they really lacked in, in that first round playoff series where they ultimately lost to the uh, Atlanta Atlanta Hawks? Well, I mean, what, if you had to sit one thing that they lacked, what was it? Yeah, I thought it was two, but the biggest one, if I had to really pick one, it would be shooting. All right, yeah, and shooting, for me, it was, the shooting was horrible, but to have, you know, a four or a five guy, you know, getting in there and playing and playing well and cleaning up the boards, how many offensive rebounds did, uh, you know, did the Hawks have? It seemed like every time uh, that there, there was any type of shot that clinged off the glass, you know, it was picked up by the Hawks. The rebounds needs to happen. And the other thing that just killed me in those six games, even the games that, that the Celtics ultimately won, the two games that they ultimately won, there was no attacking the rim. There really was none. They need that big man that can get in there and do that. To me, it's Ben Simmons. I mean, 19 points per game in college, almost 12 rebounds, uh, you know, in a game that only plays 40 minutes long, that's excellent. Jeff, I don't think either one of these players provides what you're looking for. They have Both of them have size. Ingram is taller than Simmons, but at the same time, Simmons is a perimeter player. He's, he's a good rebounder for his position, but he's not going to go down there and bang with Al Horford and Paul Millsap and 
come out with the board and he's also not a shooter. Brandon Ingram is, he's a three and a four. He's best as a stretch four in small ball lineups. Certainly needs to put on not just some muscle, but a lot of muscle. He looks to me skinnier than Kevin Durant was coming out of college. (laughs) And Kevin Durant couldn't bench 185 coming into the NBA. So Brandon Ingram is going to have to, I don't want to say live in the weight room, but he's certainly going to have to grab a few whey protein shakes along the way. When you're six foot nine and you can't crack 200 pounds, there's something wrong with you. There really is something wrong. Get that man a cheeseburger, a Krispy Kreme donut. Have him hang out with me for a couple Budweiser's. The Celtics are very big on analytics and advanced metrics. What they need to do is come up with a machine that will transfer some of Jared Sullinger's weight onto one of these two picks should they get him. Uh, Sullinger, what a disappointment <laughs> in that. In, in, in most of the season, I mean, second half of the season, Sullinger to me was, was a disappointment, disappointment in the playoffs. Yeah, he really let them down in the postseason. Again, I I predict, predicted going into the series, Hawks and Six, and I don't think that Jared Sullinger's performance was going to sway that, but certainly it was disappointing to see him be a no-show. Jeff, we talked about if the Celtics get the ping-pong balls to bounce their way and they get... Which, which it, never happens. Exactly. So if, if they can buck the trend there and get the first pick, we discussed what they would do. You lean LSU. I actually go with, just to definitively put my answer on the record, I go with option C, which, yes, is cheating. Neither. I say <laughs> you trade the pick and you ultimately go to lure one of the big names. Now, we're going to get to those players and what the Celtics would have to put together and which players we value the most in just a second. But first, let's just take a timeout here and understand, as you alluded to, the lottery gods have not been kind to the Celtics in the past. So if that happens again and they end up with the number three pick in a draft that has a a top tier of two players, what then becomes the Celtics' best option? And for clarity's sake, let's say that it is, in fact, the third pick in the draft. What then do you consider their best course of action? I think they got to take a playbook out of the, uh, what was it, the 2007 or 2008 draft where uh, they you know, took a selection in, at the number five pick and then ended up trading it uh, to get Ray Allen, which then allowed the trade to happen for um, Kevin Garnett. I think that's that's what they got to do. Uh, they got to package some of these assets that they have. Uh, you know, this Brooklyn pick, maybe a, the, one of the future Brooklyn picks, and a lot of these young guys that they got uh, sitting around here. And I don't think, honestly, I really don't think there's anyone on this roster that they wouldn't consider moving uh, along with that pick to get, uh, you know, a solid number two maybe a low-end number one type of player um, with that pick. So if it ended up being, if the ping-pong balls bounced wrong, which for some reason the lucky leprechaun just doesn't, you know, it it just doesn't work for them. Um, If the ping-pong balls bounced wrong, I'm looking and I'm saying, you know, trade out, get some veterans. you got a great young nucleus. The second time that Danny Ainge has turned around and, and built a very good young nucleus, last time it brought them a championship. I brought them uh, to a seven-game final in 2010. Um, 
you know, and I believe if Perkins doesn't get hurt, you know, they're two-time champions. Uh, I, I think it's the same thing that you trade out. There's not a guy at number three that I think makes any difference, makes your team any better than it was this past year. Yeah, I think that if they end up with the third pick, that Danny Ainge is going to have to put on his salesman hat and do his best job to get that first domino if they are to ultimately get Kevin Durant. And I still think even with the third pick, one of the names that we're going to be discussing that you hear might be available. I still think you can acquire them with the third pick, but where it may cost you is you may have to also package a future Brooklyn pick in that deal. And it's certainly worth it to be able to get one of the players like a Jimmy Butler or a DeMarcus Cousins, or even today the latest rumor is Paul George may perhaps be available. And then ultimately you try and get Kevin Durant to pair with that first domino. It's certainly worth it to do, but where it may cost the Celtics long-term is the importance of building depth, especially when you're spending so much money at the top of the roster, being able to develop draft picks on rookie contracts becomes extremely valuable. It's one of the areas the Celtics failed to sustain the big three they had in the modern era with Garnett, Pierce, and Ray Allen that they hit on Avery Bradley, but they was really the only one that worked out and came to fruition in Boston. So as a result, those guys got older and there was no one there to pick up the slack and carry the load. So you saw the dynasty begin to crumble there. So I think that is something that even if everything goes the Celtics way, it may be an area to keep an eye on as the Celtics continue to try and develop a roster around those guys. Should they be, so fortunate, Jeff. Now what I want to talk about, and I'm fascinated to hear what your pecking order is on the players that the Celtics should be targeting. Who should they make the top target out of Jimmy Butler, DeMarcus Cousins, or the free agent route where Bradley Beal and even Al Horford are available? Well, here's one thing I'm going to say. they got to make a trade. And they got to sign a free agent. I, I think a lot of people are on the same um, thought process that I am there. But if I'm making a trade, and I, I got to go with Jimmy Butler. Now I understand one of the big things for me is I, I want a, a bigger guy downtown. But I don't feel that Boogie Cousins is the man there. I think he could be a locker room cancer. I think he could break down all the goodwill. Uh, that Brad Stevens has built, I just don't feel um, he's the right fit. So I look at Jimmy Butler, and you know he he's a shooting guard, you know maybe a small forward, but he would allow he'd be a very solid number two guy, and and then hopefully you could get Kevin Durant to say, hey, all right, I'll I'll come to Boston, you know. But he's a solid guy who can do a lot of different things, and he would allow. Um, Isaiah Thomas to go back to what he does best, and that's being a solid number two to a number three guy. You know, make the open jumpers when needed, make those three balls, use his speed if you had another perimeter player and then a big man. So Jimmy Butler's the guy I would trade for. I agree, and the problem there is that 
barring the Celtics or any team for that matter, getting the number one pick and still being able to put together an impressive package, it doesn't make sense for Chicago to move Jimmy Butler. You hear about the friction that him and Fred Hoiberg aren't exactly going out and celebrating Christmas together. I say, who cares? Kobe and Phil Jackson didn't get along for much of that stint. And look at the two of them now. So just because in Hoiberg's first season, adjusting to being head coach in the NBA, he had friction with his star player. I think the biggest issue for Chicago is whose team is it? Jimmy Butler's or Derrick Rose's. And sure, Butler can get you more value, but that's not the guy you move if you have to get rid yourself of one of them. So it's going to take an awfully impressive package to floor Chicago and get Butler. So that's why I look at these next names on the list. And I think you put yourself in a situation where unless you know that signing Al Horford can get Kevin Durant to come, which I think is still highly unlikely, then the the best name available, your best shot, becomes DeMarcus Cousins. Now listen, you, you can't make the move for Cousins without either a strong understanding or a definitive answer from Durant and his agent that Cousins is enough to get you iceberg slim. But if it's not, then you don't want to roll the dice on having a situation where it's just Cousins because we've seen how that's played out in Sacramento. So even on a team that's making the playoffs in Boston, still a very slippery slope there. So ultimately, Jeff, I think right now is the time where everyone looks with such green eyes, pun intended, such optimism (laughs) about the Celtics' future and their ability to get that first domino and ultimately Kevin Durant. But to me, you just look at the names out there. I'm not sure it's going to happen. I still think that it's highly unlikely to even get the first domino that's enticing enough to Durant to get him to sign here. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel that Kevin Durant is destined to be a Boston Celtic. If he was destined to be a Boston Celtic, some ping-pong balls would have fallen right uh, you know, a few well, years maybe, back. Maybe they will now. It's a chance to write that chip. If they get the number one pick, I think that all bets are off. All bets would definitely be off if they got the number one pick. And then if if they get the number one pick and they and whether they go with um, you know Irvin or, or or Simmons, and then you could put on top of that if you could put on top of that Kevin Durant, <laughs> you know then you're going to be happy around here. But right now the Celtics need something good to happen, or Danny Ainge to to force a move to happen. Because otherwise, they're going to be stuck in that NBA purgatory, uh, which is good enough to win, you know, 45 to 55 games a year, but not good enough to get over the top and win a championship. I don't care how long these kids have to develop. It's you, you just don't win in the NBA by developing people, unless, of course, you're the Golden State Warriors. Well, it's. You win by drafting and developing in any sport, but it's just so hard. You can't win in the NBA without multiple superstars, and it's so hard to just get one, let alone two, or in some instances, three. So it's an awfully precarious situation to be in when you have none. And listen, it's going to be very fun as we get closer to the NBA draft to debate and discuss 
Brandon Ingram versus Ben Simmons. But like I said earlier, the answer is C, neither. If you get the number one pick, I don't care what team you are, Jeff. You've got to trade that pick to get the superstar that puts you in position to ultimately get Durant. And even if you don't, I still think that as far as becoming a championship contender, you're in a better position having someone along the lines of a Jimmy Butler or a Paul George than you are a Ben Simmons or a Brandon Ingram who's going to take much more time to develop. You know, and and, and we're talking big things with Jimmy, you know, trading for Jimmy Butler, uh, excuse me, Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler, you had it right. <laughs> you know, Margaritaville, baby. Right, a little cheeseburger um, in paradise. Oh, lettuce and onions and mustard <laughs> feels nice. Um, but, I mean, you really look at it. Let me ask you this. It, it, you know, maybe the number one pick gets you Jimmy Butler. Um, and if they had the three or four pick in the draft, do you think you could swing that to Philadelphia, who at that point would probably have one of the top picks in the draft? Do you think you could swing that for one of their big men? Because they're loaded up front with big men. The Celtics are loaded with small guys. Do you think you could swing that pick to someone else for uh, maybe an Okafor, and that's enough to convince one of the big-name free agents to come aboard to the Celtics? I don't think to answer the second part of your question first, simply because it's easier to, I don't think that acquiring a player like Jaleel Okafor or Nerlens Noel gets you Kevin Durant. But I do think that if the Celtics view it as their most realistic course of action, that they may be able to entice Philadelphia to say, hey, if you guys, especially if the Sixers, it's again, this is contingent upon Philadelphia actually getting the first pick or second and Brandon Brandon Ingram going one in that scenario of Philadelphia's picking two. So the Sixers would come away with Simmons. And then if you have the third pick, they can draft Dragon Bender, who, again, just like Kristaps Porzingis and Dante Exum before him, is one of these international players that even scouts haven't seen that much of. And in fact, they went out to see him, Jeff, and just so you can get an understanding of what a mystery this player is, in a critical game, a must-win game, Bender's coach sat him for all but five minutes of the game. So they really then didn't get to see him either, and that doesn't bode well that he wasn't playing. But we're talking about a seven-footer with impressive lateral mobility and a deft shooting touch. So there's a lot of intrigue around this prospect, a lot to like, even though there's a lot of unknown. So maybe you get the Sixers to bite on the chance to draft him as the process continues to play out and they learn more about Dragon Bender. But I do, I do think that's a possibility that when you look at what a premium is placed on spacing in today's game, that if they feel like Joel Embiid is progressing nicely and they want to roll the dice in year three on him returning to the court and they look to move Jaleel Okafor, I think that Dragon Bender for Okafor, that type of a swap certainly makes a lot of sense and is plausible for both parties. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's an interesting scenario. And now, Jeff. May 17th, baby. That's where it we'll, all starts. We'll, we'll find out two, exactly two months after St. Patty's Day. Luckily, Irish is two months later. Jeff, something that we don't have to wait to find out 
is the Boston Red Sox start to the season just over a month in now. And according to ESPN.com, the Red Sox ranked 20th in RPI, which is essentially a formula to determine the team's strength of schedule. So how do you balance out their 15-11 and 11 record? Going into last night's game, they were in first place in what is a weak AL East with the quality of the opponents they've been playing. It's a tough one. and I mean, in the first month of the season, can you really decide what a baseball team is right now? I mean, you really can't. I mean, upsides is down, downsides up. Uh, you know, you, you didn't have Carson Smith in here. You didn't have uh, Erod in here yet. Um, you had David Price basically being what David Price has been in his career, not great in April. And so I, I don't know what to think of this team yet. I mean, they're not hitting the long ball, but they're scoring runs when they need to score runs. They just swept the Yankees, although I, I'm not – sweeping the, this year's Yankees – isn't like sweeping the 27 Yankees. I mean, it isn't even like sweeping the 2004 Yankees. Um, it, it, it's nice because it's New York, but I don't know what to think of this this team yet. Um, there were some questions earlier in the season about you know moves that uh, Farrell was making, especially with Chris Young and pinch hitting with him. Um, you know, before uh, you know before Pablo Sandoval went down and. And now out, you know, having him on the bench and then playing him and then pinch hitting him and this and that. There are a lot of questionable decisions. I, I, I just, you know, 26, 27 games into the season here, I, I don't know what to call them yet. And, and I don't think anyone really can because we really haven't seen things happen. Now, I always look at Memorial Day. And if a team is still hanging around at Memorial Day, and they have, you know, an above 500 record that anything can happen. Um, you know, the weather warms up, the pitchers' get, arms get a little more loose, uh, the the swinging in the back gets a little more heavier, they they get more runs, uh, the weather gets warmer. So, if they're still, you know, if they're four, five, six games over 500, you know, come May, then I, then I'll I'll be a believer. Yeah, it's. I think that it's a little bit of both right now. That. The quality of opponent is playing into the Red Sox success, but at the same time, the bats are performing pretty well. Again, you knew that the lack of power was going to be an issue going into the season, and for as well as Hanley Ramirez is playing, he's the guy who's supposed to provide the power behind David Ortiz, and he's hitting singles and doubles, not home runs, even taking into account the fact that he hit one last night Overall, in the beginning of the season, not what he's been doing. Hasn't been hitting the chicks dig the long ball. So then you look well, at the fact. Go ahead. Well, chicks dig the long ball a lot with Hanley Ramirez last year when he hit 10 home runs in the first <laughs> month. And what, he hit nine the rest of the season? So I'll take the quick turnaround. You know, he hit, uh, you know, it's it's May uh, 3rd last night. He hits a ding dong. You know, maybe he starts to heat up. And, and and you need him to because you need that protection behind Ortiz. You do, but to be honest, I look at the way he's playing in the field, the fact that it's a plus. the fact that he's hitting well. Again, I know they're not home runs, but I'm okay with him hitting singles and doubles as much as you need the home runs. And I recognize that I don't look at this team as a World Series contender. 
So the fact that he's producing, driving in runs, extending innings, I'm okay with his production at the plate. Obviously, I'd like more home runs, but as long as he's producing, and if he continues to produce at this rate, I'm fine with the production that Hanley Ramirez is giving you. And then you look, Jeff, as we bring things over to the starting rotation, and we have to start at the top with the ace, David Price, who you give him this record-setting contract. He's off to a slow start here. Are you concerned about that? I hated the deal when they signed it. Um, I, I, I really did. I didn't like the deal when they signed it. Um, David Price is a extremely good pitcher. Um, you know, between the months of, of May and September, he's a very good pitcher, but has he been a great pitcher in the playoffs? There's, you know, there's stats to say, no, it's a playoff atmosphere. Every time the ACE takes the mound in Boston, um, if you were lucky enough to, uh, you know, be here in in the late '90s and early 2000s with Pedro Martinez. It was playoff atmosphere baseball every time he took the mound, and I feel that Boston is ready to explode every time David Price takes the mound because they sit there and they say we signed him to this record deal, and it's going to be the second coming of Pedro Martinez. We got ourselves an ace. We paid the big money to do it. And it's one great start, one horrible start. One great start, one horrible start. You know, and you look at him and he's undefeated. He's, I believe he's got a 4-0 record. And it's all because of run support. I mean, he, he had that 14K game, which was great. But take away the run for support, and he's, he's Clay Buckholtz right now. He hasn't been as bad as Clay Buckle. No, but I get the. No point. one's as bad as Clay Buckle. Yeah, but going forward, probably what it would be. I cer- I certainly get the point. You, effective job of driving the message home. I'm just too literal a person to let that one slide, unfortunately. But you know that. And yeah, so, that's what I said. And so, looking at David Price, Jeff, am I concerned? Yeah, because in fact, I was listening to. Belger and Maserati the other day and a caller who is known for providing statistics to them said that he did the research and that David Price's ERA in weather that's 59 degrees or below is around a five, which is awfully concerning when you consider what the weather is to start the season and his track record in the playoffs. And again, I know that there are times where he pitched well in the postseason and didn't get a win for reasons that were not his fault. But overall, it is a large enough sample size that you can't just shrug the entire results off of how he's performed in the playoffs and his inability to get wins when the games matter the most. So, yeah, I'm absolutely concerned about the slow start and the correlation between the weather being colder and him not producing at his best. And at the same time, I think that people need to take a step back and accept that there is an adjustment period. These aren't just robots. And just like LaMarcus Aldridge in the beginning in San Antonio, he looked like he was uncomfortable out there as he was trying to adjust. David Price still looks to me like someone who is adjusting not just to being a Red Sox, but to the city of Boston as well. And that's natural. It takes time. Now, I'm not saying, again, to completely disregard these results because 
there are valid reasons to be concerned. But again, let's not jump down his throat because he doesn't look like Pedro Martinez every time he takes the ball, which is what many people were expecting to happen. I still think he can produce at a very high level, and I still consider him a legitimate ace at the top of the rotation that makes things easier on everyone else in this staff. Yeah, and that's the big thing. And and they need him to step up. And again, I said I didn't like the signing, and it's because of the amount of money they're paying him. And having to prepare and having to be in Boston, there haven't been many huge free agents that have turned around and dominated Boston. So we'll see what happens with him. I'm hoping that uh, he'll turn things around. And you know what? We'll see. That's all we can say is we will see. Yes, we will, Jeff. We'll also see if Rick Porcello's hot start continues. He's 5-0 and this season with a 2.76 ERA. So you, do you buy into his performance through the first month and change into the season? I do buy into Rick Porcello's performance. And there's a lot of reasons for that. He's found that sinker ball again. Um, and he's he's pitching how he's supposed to pitch. Is he pitching like a player that is worth $20 million? No, I, I don't believe he's a $20 million pitcher. But he's pitching extremely well. And and if you go back to last August, when uh, at, at the end of August, when he came off the DL, um, you know, listen to the last, the stats here. And uh, not to bore everyone, but seven innings pitched August 21st. No runs. Eight innings pitched. One earned run. Seven innings pitched. Three earned runs. Seven innings pitched. Three earned runs. A little blip on the screen. Six innings pitched. Five. And then his last three starts. Seven for and two. Eight and four. And seven and, and, and two. Those are good, good sets. Those are quality starts. And he has found that sinker ball again this year, as I just said. And he's done some really nice things this year. I don't think he's an ace. I never thought he was an ace to begin with, but he is getting back to what he did in Detroit uh, when he was a very good pitcher for them, and 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 we've seen it through his first, you know, first four games of the season. I I, I like what I'm seeing, and I do buy in on what Rick Pacello is, is doing here. I am too, Jeff, and they brought him in to do exactly what he's doing right now, which is to have an ERA around three to go deep into games and to save that bullpen. Exactly. And to get quick outs, to get ground ball outs. When he came in, he, for whatever reason, maybe it was the contract, the pressure being on a new team. He completely had a philosophical change where he wanted to try and rely on his fastball to overpower hitters. And that's just not his game. And we saw how it played out. And when he went to the DL and was able to just step away from the game for a little bit, he said to himself, what am I doing? I'm trying to be something I'm not. And so he came off the DL and ever since has been performing very effectively for the Red Sox, doing, we mentioned the numbers, exactly what they brought him in to do initially, going back to, like you said, relying on that sinker. And the results have consistently been there since August. So... Just like you, I'm buying into Rick Porcello's hot start, and I think the Red Sox, when you look at that rotation, especially with the injury to start the season to Eduardo Rodriguez, they desperately huge. needed this from Porcello. It's been a huge boon 
for that rotation as a whole. And I'm curious to see as Eduardo Rodriguez comes back and works his way into four, if they keep Porcello in the number two slot behind David Price. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do. No, I wouldn't be surprised if they do either because you go from, you know, Price to lefty who, uh, you know, is, is more of a power pitcher. Then you go to, you know, basically having Porcello out there, um, you know, who's, as I call him, a junk pitcher. And, and that has nothing to do with um, him being junky. It's the fact that he's, you know, throws junk. He throws that sinker ball. Uh, and then you can get back into uh, Erod, who can throw the ball, you know, pretty good and has some movement there. Uh, but the one thing that I also want, want to point out with Rick Porcello is, you know, we talked about the sinker, but because of the sinker, those strikeout numbers are getting up there. You know, in, in five games, he's got 36 strikeouts. So, you know, that's that's over seven a game. And four out of five games with a quality start, six innings pitched, three runs or less, pretty damn good. Um, I mean, the last two times out there against Atlanta and the New York Yankees, it's not exactly like he's facing the greatest hitters out there. Uh, but, you know, 13.1 innings, nine hits, no runs. I love it. Yeah, he has produced very well this season and really dating back to August of last season. One player who the same cannot be said for is Clay Buckholtz. Jeff, let me ask you this. He's got $13 million owed to him over the course of this season, $13.5 million owed to him next season. Is that too much money to waive him even if he continues in this downward spiral? Yeah, because there's got to be someone out there that they could trade him to that can think that they can right the ship. Get him out of the Boston uh, you know, craziness. Get him over to a, you know, a National League team. Get him over to... Um, you know, one of those clubs where could he become something? Uh, and he could. And, and this is a guy that in 2003, you know, was was 12 and one, but he has never been that guy. And I think the worst thing, and, and this is sad to say, but I think the worst thing that ever happened to Clay Buckholtz was when he threw that no hitter back in 2007. That's the worst thing that ever happened to him. All of a sudden, you know. All this stuff was put on, oh, my God, we have this kid who can throw hard. Uh, you know, he's lanky. He's kind of gets out there. He does some funky stuff. But you know what? He pitched a no-hitter against the, the Baltimore Orioles and, and, and all this stuff. I, I think it's the worst thing that ever happened to him. And I think that Theo Epstein really fell in love with this guy and the potential that he had. There were so many trades out there that could have been made that Epstein did not make, uh, and and they could have moved this guy. He's never been a durable pitcher. I mean, the most starts he's ever had in a year was 29 back in 2012, and that was with a 4.56 ERA. I mean, that's horrible. Um, he just hasn't been a great pitcher. Uh, you know, two years, he's two two out of the ten years in in his career. Has he had good seasons? 2010, 2013. Um, I don't think it's. Uh, do I think they would cut him or excuse me, uh, release him and, and eat the 13 million? No, because I think there's someone out there would, who would see that you know we could do something with this guy. And you know what? They might have to eat salary to do it. Um, but when these guys start to get healthy, uh, you know when Rodriguez gets healthy, 
when you see Joe Kelly coming back and getting healthy, even though I think the best move for him is to move him to the bullpen. Um, you know, you gotta you gotta decide what you're gonna do with it. Is May too early to trade a guy? Yeah, maybe, but uh, you gotta you gotta do something with him. I don't think Buckholtz really is deserving of being in Boston any longer. They're absolutely gonna have to eat salary and a significant amount of it if they're able to find a trade partner who has the cap space and is willing to roll the dice on Clay Buckholtz. And like you said, it's probably going to have to be a National League team where he wouldn't have to face a designated hitter. Quite frankly, if they can find a team that's willing to roll the dice on Buckholtz, I would take a bag of trail mix in return, give it to Pablo Sandoval as he tries to <laughs> slim down over this DL. Trail mix now. doesn't work to slim down, believe me. I've tried it. Well, too much. you got to stick to the serving size, big fella. Well, you know what it is? That's I get the ones the with the M&M's, secret. right? I just pick the M&M's out, uh-huh. and it's so good. Yeah, I don't blame you. I do the same thing. And we'll see how it goes for Panda. He, he now knows he's been warned to stay away from the trail mix even. We'll see how it goes for Clay Buckles and just how long of a rope he has here in Boston. Imagine if you could, you know, take the diet that Clay Buckholz, the bean poles on, and give it to Pablo Sandoval uh, for like three months and give Pablo Sandoval's diet over to a Clay Buckholz. You might get a durable pitcher in Clay Buckholz if he threw on 30 pounds. And, and, if, and if Sandoval lost 30, 35 pounds, might be a little more agile at the hot corner and, and not Tara Labrum sleeping. I think one of them would be an all-star. I don't know which one with Buckholz's head, but I think, I think one of them would produce at a very high level and the other one would be a solid contributor. So, again, the Celtics need to work on transferring the wrong weight to the right person, and it seems like the Red Sox need to do the same. So maybe this is a joint project for these two Boston teams. We'll see what happens, right? Jeff, we're also going to see what happens this offseason with the Boston Bruins. So my question to you, there's so much pessimism, there's so much negativity surrounding this franchise, but what do they have to do this offseason for it to be considered a successful one? Blow it up. (laughs) Uh, You know, really blow it up. Um, I think that's the biggest thing that the Bruins could could do here. I mean, they've kept the band together too long. In, in my opinion, they really have. Um, you know, Peter Shirelli fell in love with guys, gave them no trade clauses, bad long-term contracts. they got to blow this thing up. You know, and, and in my eyes, everyone on this roster for the right deal is tradable, and that includes... Uh, Patrice Bergeron. That includes Tuka Rask. Um, although I I I, I wouldn't want to see Bergeron go. Um, you know they got to do something here. Again, they're in hockey purgatory. Um, just like we talked about the Celtics. You know needing a superstar to get a, over the top. Um, you know two years in a row collapsing down the stretch. Uh, there's not a, a guy on this team that is a a, a top two. Uh, defenseman. I mean, Zeno Char is great, but he's no longer a top two defenseman. They need, you know, they need some defensemen. They need some offensive-minded scorers. Um, 
there's a lot that needs to be done to this team. Can they do it? I, I believe they can, but they have to be willing to make the hard decisions to make the team better and to realize, listen, keeping this band together and finishing with 90 points and missing out on the playoffs, you know, it, it's not going to last too much longer until everyone is looking and everyone is on the hot seat. It's time to take a step back and rebuild. Jeff, I think it, I think it's pretty easy for the Bruins to have a successful offseason. There's, there's only one direction they can go oh. that would be wrong, <laughs> and that is to make the type of moves that solidify their place firmly in the middle tier where they're too far away from becoming a <laughs> cup contender and they're, it becomes even more difficult than it already is for them to blow up this roster. But even if they take steps towards a complete and honest rebuild, I think that is great and I'm all for it. And if all of a sudden the Jacobs, the Jacobses decide that they're going to spend over the top and they find ways to bring in the missing pieces because, again, the, the pieces that they're missing are significant, but there aren't that many of them. If they're willing to do that and put all their chips to the center of the table, then I am all for that too, and it would create a much more exciting brand of hockey. And finally, we would have postseason hockey again after a two-year drought. So I would be all I for either. Hockey. Oh, me too. It's one of my favorite postseasons, and right now it's going head-to-head with the NBA, and in terms of entertainment value, kicking the crap out of it, and this is from someone whose favorite sport is basketball, so take that for what it's worth. Jeff, either way, though, I think that it is going to be wise to have Patrice Bergeron in the mix, whether it's competing or developing the young guys like the Pasternak's of the world Another player that I'd love for them to sign is Jimmy Vesey, the Hobie Baker winner. He, right now, to me, is priority number one in terms of players that are not on this roster. Couldn't agree with you more. Could not agree with you more, Bobby. Gotta love hockey talk. I'd much rather be sitting down right now watching the Bruins play in a second-round series. But, hey, there's always next year, right? Where does Mr. Kane side on the entertainment rankings of the Stanley cup playoffs. Where does that rank for you? It's the best sport out there when it comes to, uh, when it comes to playoffs, it, it, it night in and night out the intensity. It beats every single sport out there. I, I really believe the regular season for hockey is, is too long. Um, but playoff hockey, it's, it's unfathomable how great playoff hockey is. It's just, Every other night, you're on pins and needles, and, and it's it's awesome. I mean, it, it, it's just the swings are, are, and the energy in the crowd. It's I love playoff hockey, and, and I and I know you're a basketball guy, Bobby, and and you know it's great. But really, for my money, when you're watching even playoff basketball, basketball comes down to the fourth quarter, you know, and, and, and runs and, and the last couple minutes and. And, and using your timeouts right, and using your using your um, you know fouls correctly. Uh, baseball, you know, baseball playoffs are great, but if your if your team's not in it, you're not 
you know, tuning in. I mean, look at the look at the the, st- uh, the statistics out there. You know, the Nielsen ratings uh, last year when it was uh, you know Kansas City and uh, the Mets o- outside of those two markets. You know, I, I think I might have watched three or four innings um, of, of playoff baseball. The Super Bowl, as it sits as its own, is it, awesome. But really, I mean, outside of some amazing games, and, and we've been lucky uh, to be part of a lot of those amazing games on the, you know, the good side and the short. Um, but playoff hockey, I mean, I can tune in to St. Louis versus Chicago and get emotionally invested in it. And you can have an eight seed go all the way to the cup, as we saw a couple of years ago. It, it, it's it's awesome. It, I think it's the best sport out there when it comes to playoffs. Playoff hockey, when the intensity is ratcheted up, it has everything that you could possibly want as a sports fan. And even if you are a casual sports fan, it's pretty easy to get wrapped up in the Stanley Cup playoffs between the speed and the pace of play, between the physicality element of it, just everything about it, the fact that there's hardly ever, there's hardly any in-game breaks. You can go 10 minutes, sometimes more, without a commercial while you're on the ice. So it's, it's just very easy to get wrapped up in. And like you said, to become emotionally invested in, even if you don't have a horse in the race. And it's why I'd like to see the NHL and shortening the season might be part of this solution. It's why I'd like to see them do a better job of at least marketing their stars because right now it's a regional game where fans really only care about their team. Even even a portion of the diehards really only care about their team and they're not watching Calgary play Edmonton in game 52 of the regular season. So that's what I would like to see the NHL But the same do. could be said a little bit, Bobby, about baseball. Absolutely. You know, the same could be, I, yep, because, I agree. you know, everyone talks about Boston being a great baseball town. But really, Boston's a great Red Sox town. You know, Boston loves hockey. And if you turn around and, and I mean, look at all the great colleges, the Hockey East, uh, what it, it means up here. You know, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Hockey really can be marketed a lot better. I, I wish they would do it a lot better because in the Northeast, it's huge. I mean, you see a, a game, UNH versus BU, it's on Ness in it, and it gets very good ratings. And even even the Manchester Monarchs, uh, who you know won the Calder Cup last year, it, it drew huge. And, and we're talking about a minor league team for the Los Angeles Kings. So I, I, I agree with you where they need to market their stars around the country better. But in Boston, I believe hockey reigns supreme. I don't think it reigns supreme over the other three professional sports, but I I do think that people love the Bruins. And I think that when the Bruins are doing well, like in 2011 when they won the Cup, And then in 2013, when they went to the Cup, I think that even casual sports fans in Boston or sports fans who say they're not hockey fans in the area, they begin to get invested and root for the team and watch the games and get swept up in everything. But I think that it's about 
the Bruins locally. It's not about the NHL as much. And I think the same is with the Red Sox and baseball in general is a regional sport. And I think that part of the equation is that hockey should study how basketball has been able to successfully market its stars in order to grow the game. And I think that baseball needs to look into the we obvious need to take issues. Those helmets off. What's up? We got to take those helmets off in hockey. You know, I mean, the stars, the Gretzkys, and the Oars. You know, people knew what they looked like. They they get those <laughs> those helmets on. You know, the NBA market stars because LeBron James can walk down the street and everyone knows what he looks like. I I, I wonder if uh, I wonder if Sidney Crosby walked down the street if you would recognize him. Get back to shinny hockey. <laughs> you know, that would be interesting. Outside of the Super Bowl, I'd really like to see, you know, the last 10 years um, looking at the Nielsen ratings for any of the uh, the championship series, uh, basketball, baseball, and hockey uh, in the New England area and see how they did when the Bruins, Celtics, or Sox weren't in it and see see what uh, Nielsen ratings did for uh, across the world. I, I'd really like to see that. Jeff, you've just created and effectively teased one of our future segments for next week's show. That's all the time we have for this week, but that among... Can't wait for next week's show. Oh, that's right, baby. (laughs) That among many other topics, including the fact that we'll be one step closer to lottery night in the NBA and one step closer to naming an NBA and Stanley Cup champion are going to be on the docket we will have this podcast out to you presumably midweek around wednesday but never fear we will keep you posted on social media like i said just follow at bobby underscore k91 jeff kane 78 and of course follow the franchise on twitter and until that podcast comes out That's going to be the only way to communicate with us. So for Jeff Kane, I'm Bobby Kravitsky. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. And until next week, have a great week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.